PRN. Pause, renew, next. A podcast about soul care, scripture, and stories of faith. I'm Jenny Detweiler, and I am so glad that you're here with me today, friends. It is the beginning of a new month, actually the last month of the year, December. Can you even believe it? I can't. This year has flown by. But because we're starting a new month, today I have a fabulous guest interview for you. It was a joy and a privilege and a delight to get to meet my online friend, Alicia Akins, and have a conversation that is rich and deep, full of culture and food and, of course, scripture. We talked all about her book, Invitations to Abundance, How the Feasts of the Bible Nourish Us Today. You guys, I loved this conversation, and I think that you will, too. It's not just about one thing. We kind of jump all over the place, but it's really good and deep, and it's going to leave you wanting to go and read her book for sure. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. Well, Alicia, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you here, especially, I feel especially thankful given that you're not even feeling that great today. So it's a real pleasure to have you. Would you like to introduce yourself and kind of share just whatever you'd like people to know about you? Sure. Um, my name is Alicia, as you said. And first, I just want to say thanks for having me. Um, it's always um, a delight to get to talk about my work and um, the book. So thanks for having me. I currently live in D.C. And before I work in international education, before I lived here, I lived in Southeast Asia and worked at a museum. Before that, I was in grad school in Seattle, studying China and museums. Before that, I lived in um, Boston um, as sort of a transition because I had just come back from living in China for three years. Um, So I have um, a good amount of international experience living abroad, and um, I'm very engaged in my day-to-day work with things related to Um, international matters. So I am a person who cares greatly about the world and uh, people who are not like me and people in other places. Um, I am also a student at RTS DC um, in the Masters of Arts and Biblical Studies program. I'm about four years in and I don't know how many years I have left, unfortunately, writing a book while you're in school and having a full-time job. Uh, kind of slows down all of those things. So I'm not sure exactly when I'll finish, but I, I do that as well. That is so cool. I, I think we could talk for a long time just about all that. I have so many questions. It's so fun. So when you say Southeast Asia, like were you in different countries or one particular oh, country? Or? Um, I was in Laos, which is a small landlocked country most people haven't heard of. It's between Thailand and Vietnam. And it also shares a border with China. Very cool. And what kind of museum was it? I worked at an ethnology museum that was about the different ethnic groups of uh, people in Laos. Actually, um, how uh, different ethnic groups and minority groups live overseas is something that's really interesting to me. So one of the years I was in China, I lived in the Gobi Desert uh, because there was a university out there for uh, ethnic minorities. And so I'm, I've just kind of been drawn to that line of inquiry, seeing what is it like to be a minority somewhere else? So the museum I worked at in Laos was both um, 
museum about different ethnic groups, but it also worked with artisans to help them uh, develop ways to continue to practice their crafts. Um, because as their country develops, people turn to quick uh, manufactured things rather than things that are handmade and take a lot of time. Um, and so we would provide, like, we would sell things in our museum shop um, and provide avenues for artisans to sell their um, uh, products and handicrafts so that they could continue to practice those things in their communities. Oh my goodness. I love that so much. That is really cool. I, I can only imagine how many stories you have and how many things you've experienced. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of travel, I know you traveled all over the world and a lot in Asia specifically, and you just got back from a trip to South Korea. Yes. Where have you been and what has, well, we've talked about some of the places you've been, but what has being in all those different cultures, like what has that taught you? How has that broadened your horizons? So the interesting thing is I've only been to Asia. Um, I've been to Asia. I've been to Jamaica and Bahamas and Mexico too, but I've never been to Europe. I've never been to Canada, which I find really embarrassing since I lived in Seattle for two years. But yeah, I was thinking, oh, I could write a book about all the things that I learned living overseas. And then I was like, oh, actually, I just finished writing that book. Um, So yeah, I learned so much. I, my first stint overseas was right after college and I hadn't been overseas really since I lived in Japan as a child. Um, And I don't really have memories of Japan. So it was really my first experience being abroad. And the only things that I knew about China were the thing, the very few things that my teachers had taught me and then what was shared during news or newscasts and things like that, like the narrative of China in the news that usually had to do with like geopolitical things. Um, And so I went and I had a certain image in my mind of what China was like. And I got there and it was nothing like what I was expecting. And I just fell in love. And I thought, wow, I was really, really ignorant before I came. And I had such a um, skewed perception of what this country was uh, and one dimensional as well. And um, I decided that I wanted to make it sort of my life goal to help um, educate other people who might have been in the same position as me about the rich diversity and complexity and multidimensionality of that region. So, I mean, that kind of like changed the um, trajectory of my career and life. I had gone to school to be a music teacher and I have not done that for a single day um, since I finished student teaching. I worked with Christians during my time there. And so getting to experience and see what it's like for people to um, trust God when it costs them dearly to do so. Um, And just seeing Christians there you know, make decisions for Christ was very impactful on on my own um, thoughts about faith and commitment to God um, and even worship. Like, I don't take it for granted that an entire congregation of people can stand with their hands raised in a very old historical building and sing as loudly as they want with music as loudly as they want. Um, 
and just generally make as much noise as they'd like. Um, and so I often am in worship just thinking about how amazing it is that I can be in worship like that. I learned a lot about my limits just as a, a human. Some of the places that I lived weren't the most comfortable initially. Um, and learning, I guess, I can do hard things and I can make choices that other people consider courageous. Um, I moved to Laos um, after I finished grad school. I interviewed for that job. And within three weeks, I had moved there and I didn't speak the language and I moved on my own. Um, and it didn't even occur to me that that was a difficult decision to make. <laughs> I told other people and they were like, wow, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do that. So um, I used to think that I didn't really like languages that much. Um, I remember telling someone in college, I had thought about uh, working for Wycliffe. Um, Bible translators. And then I thought, oh, you know, I just don't think I like languages enough that I want to spend the rest of my life studying them. And I've studied languages my whole life. Like there hasn't been more than a six month period of my adult life that I haven't been studying some language. So um, I just learned a lot of things about me. I learned a lot of things about what it means to be a Christian um, in general and the different things that Christians around the world face. So lots of lots of things. Yeah, that's rich. Like, there's a lot. Yeah, and I'm sure that was just skimming the surface, really. Yeah. The things that we could talk about. Yeah. So your book is called Invitations to Abundance, How the Feasts of the Bible Nourish Us Today. So obviously we're going to talk about food because mm -hmm. feasting. <laughs> but let's start out for fun. What are some of the favorite foods that you've tasted? I mean, Yes, around the world, also here in America, just like what what are your favorites? Yeah, anything that comes to mind. I tell people that I'm a noodle vor um, because I love all things noodles. It doesn't matter how they're cooked or seasoned or their thickness, their long, like their length, like none of that matters. If it's a noodle, I want it. I just really like noodles. So I like pasta. Lasagna is one of my favorite foods um, here and other, you know, other things in that sort of family. I think, um, when I lived in Laos, one of my favorite dishes is actually just a condiment. I really like spicy food, like really, really as spicy as you can make it. I'm happy. Like food that's not spicy, just is like, there's something missing. Um, except like ice cream and sweet things like that. <laughs> but, um, so my favorite food in Laos was um, a like dipping sauce. There are a variety of things you could make the sauce with. My favorite kind was when they made it with green chilies, but you could also actually make it with insects, which I never tried, or things like um, eggplant or tomato. Um, and I, I have tried those, but before I moved back to the States, my coworkers bought me a little cookbook of just how to make these dipping sauces. So... Um, it was a well-established fact that <laughs> I basically lived for this side dipping sauce and would dip everything in it. Um, also, so I'm, I'm just wondering, have you perfected it? Like, have you practiced at home? Oh, so, yes, I have. Well, I haven't perfected it, but I have tried making it here um, in the States. I looked up a recipe and I have something that's like good enough that I do make here. Yeah. It's not exactly the same, but it like is sufficiently close that I'm, I'm happy with it. And I, I make it often in China. I lived in three different cities and 
each city or each region of China has their own sort of regional cuisine and they can be quite different from each other. So it took me a while to get used to Chinese food in the beginning. I thought I liked Chinese food because I had eaten it in America. And then I got there and I was like, this is a Chinese food. (laughs) Um, It was very different. And so it took me a while to get used to it. And then when I moved, I would order the things that I liked in the previous city I lived in and they would be totally different. So I'd have to find different dishes that I liked. But there was one dish... um, when I lived out in the desert that I really liked and it has like such a generic name It's called big plate chicken. And it's just a huge, huge plate. Like it can serve an entire table of people, um, of chicken with potatoes and this like mildly spicy red sauce and noodles, um, at the bottom. And I really loved that. But yeah, I I guess I like noodles and anything spicy. (laughs) We're recording this around lunchtime, and right now, I kind of wished I wouldn't have asked that question. <laughs> sounds really good. Yeah. So I'd love to hear what led you to write Invitations to Abundance, because, I mean, this feels like something that probably just didn't come out of the blue. It maybe was growing for a while, or the Lord led you to that. Can you tell us what what yeah. led you into writing that book? Yeah. So I never thought I would write a book. Um, I studied music as an undergrad and then I studied China. Um, and so like, if you'd asked me then like, Oh, you know, if you could write a book on anything, I'd be like, why would I write a book? I can, you know, do these other things. But, um, I started writing as a way to process things that were happening in my life. I actually started my blog, um, Feet Cry Mercy when I was moving to Southeast Asia as a way to keep in touch with my family. And then when I moved back to the States, There was a lot going on in the world, and I just was using it as a way to process current events. Um, Two years after moving to D.C., I lost my job. And I, you know, I have a master's degree. I have international experience, speak multiple languages. And I assumed that I would be able to find another job relatively quickly, but I was out of work for over a year and a half. And it was a challenging time. Um, a time where I didn't always have, uh, what I needed just to be frank. Like there was one month my church had to pay for rent for me. One month my mom had to pay my rent. Um, there was one month that I didn't have enough money to like have proper meals. So I would find change around my room and go to the dollar store and buy the heaviest box of junk food that I could, um, find and eat off of that for a week. And so for me, that was the most extended period of scarcity and um, difficulty that I had encountered. And yet, during that time, I felt like it was also the period of life where God felt most present and most most real and most um, enriching, I'd say. And um, I went to a Thanksgiving dinner one year after this was at the end of the month that I didn't have money for food. And I had just gotten my first um, unemployment check and gone to the grocery store to buy something to take to this dinner because it was sort of like a potluck. 
And in that short window of time, my um, credit card information had been compromised. And so like I went to check out and they're like, sorry, like you have to call your bank. Your card's been frozen. There are fraudulent charges on it. Um, and they let me buy that one meal and then like shut my <laughs> shut my card down. But I had I headed from that, like from the grocery store to this dinner. And um, during the dinner, my friend asked, what makes you feel rich? And considering that my life was the way that it was, I gave that question a lot of thought. And um, this wasn't a Sunday school answer, but I really felt like God mm-hmm. um, was. And so as I continued to go through this period of scarcity and continued to experience God's faithfulness and presence during it, I thought, uh, you know, if I do ever get to write a book, because at this point I had been like, taking my writing a little bit more seriously. Um, I want to write about this time and I want to write about how God invites us to abundance, even when we are experiencing scarcity. So that's kind of how the original idea came up that I wanted to write about abundance versus scarcity and sort of put abundance in its proper perspective. But also at the same time that friend who had me over for Thanksgiving asked if I would write a liturgy or write an essay or something for their Thanksgiving dinner the next um, year. And I was really intrigued by a verse I had encountered in Jeremiah about, um, it says, I will feast the soul of the priests with gladness. Um, And the word for gladness was fat. Um, like, uh, pig fat or whatever. And I sort of became obsessed with like exploring fat in the Bible and why it was used that way. And then that sort of branched out into food and the imagery of food and scripture in general. Um, and then that sort of led me to blend this interest in food and this interest in abundance and scarcity, um, that came together and, um, informed invitations to abundance. Wow, that's beautiful. I'm really glad I asked that question now because that was even deeper than I imagined. It's so interesting. The Lord wastes nothing in our lives, does he? Mm -hmm. I mean, really nothing, even when it seems like you're going nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) He redeems it all for sure. Um, So each of these chapters is really significant. I'll tell you there were a few that kind of stood out to me. I think Mm -hmm. the chapter on mercy, I I really loved that chapter. The last two, especially about about communion and being with Jesus in heaven and all of us eating together. But I'm wondering for you, like, was there a particular chapter that really stands out or resonates with you? Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, I really liked the last chapter on the wedding supper of the lamb and also the chapter on mercy (laughs) was also a favorite. Um, I originally wrote that chapter. So I'm in seminary and a lot of these papers the original research into them started out as term papers. So when I would take a class, I would think, what can I write my term paper on that would inform this book or help me get some initial research done? Um, And so I remember my gospels class, I wrote on Luke 14, which is the chapter on mercy. And um, I'm a, a deacon at my church or deaconess at my church. And, um, I don't want to say that I'm interested in those things because I'm a deacon, but I'm a, I'm a deacon because I'm interested in those things. And um, so 
as I've like gone back and looked over papers I've written, when I've had the opportunity to select my own topic, it usually is kind of like in that vein. Um, and so I like those chapters. I also really like the prophet, the ruin reversed chapter that looks at the imagery of feasting in the um, prophets. I started writing that chapter at the beginning of um, the pandemic. And it was very eerie to describe um, exile. You know, it was like people are no longer on the streets. The voice of the bride and the bridegroom are no longer heard and people were canceling weddings. Um, there, are no, there are no children on the streets and all, you know, all kids were doing remote schooling and it was talking about old people um, also not being on the streets anymore and, and them sort of like passing away or no longer being figureheads. And in the beginning of the pandemic, that was, you know, sort of what we were hearing most about. And so it felt like I could just look out my window and not imagine completely what exile was like, but imagine a little bit of what exile might have been like, or at least imagine it better because of the pandemic than I would have been able to if that had never happened and there hadn't been a lockdown. So it was kind of um, that chapter, a lot of the imagery was sort of borrowed from real life, but also from scripture, which is kind of a weird confluence of, um, you know, situations, but yeah. Interesting. That is kind of eerie, prophetic. Yeah. Eerie. <laughs> I'm not saying that I think the pandemic is like, you know, judgment or anything, but like the effect right. of the pandemic um, in some ways mirrored the descriptions of um, exile. Right. Yeah. I'm interested to know. I mean, you've already told us some really, but what are some of the surprising or interesting things that you learned in your research? Because there's all kinds of cool little facts in here and random words that you define that I never knew what they meant. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So I really like storytelling. And um, I, for a while, for a few years, had a storytelling coach and would participate. She has a company um, that visits schools in Baltimore, and I would go with her and share stories with um, middle and high school students in Baltimore. And so when I was writing this book, I really wanted, I think, um, the beginning of each chapter starts off with the story of the feast and sort of drops the reader into what it might have been like to be there and um, retells the story. And um, one of the things that my coach often would talk about is like, what does it smell like? What does it um, sound like when describing a scene? And so a lot of things that I read in the Bible, I just kind of like continue reading. I don't think about like, what color is this? Or what does this smell like? Or um, what, how would this experience have actually played out? So I, I think a lot of the stuff that was interesting to me um, in one way was those sort of details about, you know, what color is this plant or what did this field look like? Um, those kinds of details um, that would help me paint the picture better. But I think the second biggest thing that really struck me in my research was how many of the feasts contain some kind of provision to help your neighbor. Um, I saw it in one and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, like in the Passover, if there's a family that doesn't have enough people to have their whole lamb, then you, you know, invite them over so that it's not a burden for them. 
And then I keep going and it's like, oh, well, in the, you know, in this feast, you're supposed to leave the edges of your field uncleaned for other people to come by. And in this feast, if there are some people who didn't prepare anything. And so I just over and over again, I saw this repeating theme of generosity between neighbors and not just generosity from God um, that sort of permeates the overall storyline of what the purpose of these, um, one of the purposes or effects of these um, feasts um, as they're lived out or practiced or, yeah. So I found that really fascinating. Yeah, that leads me into my next question, which really you just answered. So that is like, (laughs) like the Lord works individually to show us his abundance. Like when we're in a place of scarcity, he gives us manna and he sustains Mm -hmm. us which is beautiful. Also, how does that abundance then spill out onto our neighbors? Because you write a lot about community. I mean, I think food has always been really a source of community, right? We all gather together around tables. Yeah. There was one particular quote that I just really want to read. You wrote, we are hardwired to connect more closely with those with whom we eat similar foods. Researchers have found that eating similar foods stimulate feelings of trust and cooperation between people who are otherwise strangers. Communion was a meal to be shared both with God and among his people. The importance of unity among God's people cannot be overstated. I don't know why that has never occurred to me before, but that's like a mic drop. Very interesting fact. It seems kind of obvious, but I've never thought about it before. Yeah. But you're saying like throughout your book, God's generosity and bringing other people into the fold, what stood out to you? Yeah. Um, One of the phrases or ideas that came to me very early in writing the book was um, mercied people, mercy people, like people who are recipients of mercy then become um, uh, channels of mercy and that that is sort of the way it's supposed to work. Um, Or at least that's the way the feasts suggest that it's supposed to work. And I I think the rest of scripture sort of plays that out that like we are um, the way we are treated by God um, and his character and his dealing with us is to inform our character and how we deal with others. But yeah, that was just really impressed upon me about how, I mean, even if you just think about the definition of a feast, like me sitting in my room with a bunch of food isn't a feast. Like anthropologists who study feasts say that there's a communal aspect to it, like always. And there's something about um, the people that make the feast what it is. Um, It's not just the food or the presence of multiple people, but there's something about the composition of people. And this really sort of stuck out to me as I was thinking about feasts and why God would use this imagery there's like a warmth to a meal that is special and not just an everyday grab and go. I'm watching TV while I do this. And a part of it comes from community. Um, And I think that that is woven throughout scripture, um, both related to feasts and just related to what it means to be a member of the body of Christ in general. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen. Okay. So I'm, I'm interested to know about your upcoming book that you're 
you just finished writing. You're in the process of editing. I'm not sure where you are. But. Yeah, the edits just uh, got approved. The, my revisions just got approved over the weekend. Okay. Would you like to share with us what it's about? Yeah. So it is called uh, The Gift of the Outsider. And um, the subtitle is, let me see. We just decided the subtitle. So I'm, I have to remember. Oh. What Living in the Margins Teaches Us About Faith. Um, And the book is dedicated to um, people at the margins who have shown me dimensions of faith and faithfulness that weren't discoverable from the inside. And it looks at a variety of different kinds of outsiderness. It's not just related to people who are ethnically on the outside, but maybe people who have disabilities, people who are single, people who are grieving. Um, victims of injustice. There's a chapter on the persecuted church. Um, it talks about um, people who don't have power or who are poor um, and kind of look, challenges the idea that um, there are no advantages to being an outsider. And it looks at what some of those things are, at least in terms of um, faith the gifts that we have to offer other Christians and also looks at some of the drawbacks to being on the inside that people kind of don't think about. So each chapter sort of contains a, the risks of the inside and the gifts of the outside. And it's really a call to sort of, so in first Corinthians, it says that God gave greater parts, gave greater honor to parts of the body that lacked it. Um, and that uh, he chose those who uh, were not uh, to shame those who are. And so it kind of like First Corinthians figures have heavily in this book, but those sort of ideas that um, the way we mend fractures in the church is not to further splinter, but to give greater honor to others. And explaining why and how these people enrich our lives of faith. So that's Mm -hmm. what the next book is about. So in a lot of ways, it is about that chapter on mercy, but Mm -hmm. just expanded much farther. (laughs) I love that so much. Oh, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it too. Yeah. That's awesome. So I love to ask my guests if there's like a particular passage of scripture that either is a lifelong passage that you just hold on to or one that particularly God's working in your heart right now or using in your life. Is there a particular verse? Um, I'd say there's probably like a suite of verses. Um, all of the ones that deal with um, loving your neighbor and loving people who are hard to love. Mm. Um, like neighbor and inclusive of neighbor is like enemy I'm saying and so all of those um you know there's the passage in first John that's like if anyone claims that he loves God but does not love his neighbor who he's seen um but can't love God who they haven't seen and so I've been like thinking a lot about that recently like what is it like it's in there (laughs) Um, and John doesn't mince words about it. And so like, what does that mean for where my focus, um, should be and the truth of what I say, believe about God and his goodness in creating other people. Um, so in general, I'd say, uh, verses that deal with loving your neighbor. And then a lot of first Corinthians, just because I was 
just in it very um, heavily the past few months for the book. So. Very cool. I think different people define neighbor in different ways. I think the Lord has been teaching me a lot of similar things. Um, How are you defining neighbor? Um, I'm defining neighbor as anyone who's not me. (laughs) That'll cover it. That'll cover it. Yeah. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood that way, isn't it? (laughs) Awesome. Very cool. Well, is there anything you wanted to share that I didn't give you a chance to? Um. I feel like your questions covered it. I'm I'm glad I got a chance to talk about my next book and I feel like it connects to the first book in some ways, just taking some themes in a different direction and relates to my experience overseas. So, yeah. Very cool. So I know my listeners are going to want to go check you out after this. Are there specific places that they can find you or that you can find your book? So Invitations to Abundance is available I want to say wherever books are sold, but I don't know if that's true. Um, I know that it's on Amazon and Christian books and you can buy it from the publisher Harvest House. If you Google it, you should be able to find um, different places where it's sold. There's also an audiobook version and I've heard, I I didn't read it, but an actress um, who's a professional um, book reader did. And I've heard that she did a really excellent job in general, but especially on the liturgies at the end of each chapter. So check that out if you like audiobooks. I can be found on Twitter mostly. I'm also on Instagram, but my Instagram is mostly just about my travel and foreign language learning. But on Twitter, my handle is Feet Cry Mercy. Um, and my blogs title is also Feet Cry Mercy. Very cool. And I will make sure I link to those things in today's podcast show notes. So it's been really fun to connect with you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was a delight. Thanks again, Alicia, for being on today's podcast episode. It was really fun to connect with you. And I look forward to talking with you again soon about your newest book. Well, friends, if you want to go find her book, like she said, you can find it on Amazon or Christian Book, maybe in your local bookstore. And I really do suggest that you go check out the audiobook too, if you'd rather listen. Her book again is called Invitations to Abundance, How the Feasts of the Bible Nourish Us Today. And I will link to all of her stuff in today's show notes. If you'd like to find me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Pause Renew Next. And I would love for you to follow me there. Okay, I know that I missed last week, and I'm so sorry I had the flu and I could not follow through on making a podcast, so I put out a blog last week instead. So instead of my biography episode coming out last week like it was scheduled to, it is actually going to be coming up next week. You guys, I am so excited about this upcoming episode. You know I love to do biography episodes, and I think you guys enjoy them too. I always get really great feedback. So please join me back here next Tuesday For a biography episode of an incredible woman of faith, you are going to be totally inspired by her story. She's amazing. Now, in my normal soul care episodes, I end every week with a benediction. Usually, I don't do that with my guest interviews, but today's is special, and I do want to leave you today with a benediction, and it comes out of Alicia's book. Let these words just wash over you today, friends, as you go about the rest of your day. Now, may the God who feasts our weary souls with gladness and unites us together through his spirit as we eat of one loaf. Restore and keep us at all times and in every way, 
by the blood of the eternal covenant and bring us safely into his radiant presence, having withstood the weight of the worry that seeks to break us. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, both now and to the day of eternity. To those loved at a wide table, he who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Grace be with you all. Amen. I'm Jenny Detweiler with PRN. Pause, renew, next. May you be encouraged on your journey with Jesus.